And one of the things that I've been looking at in the last couple of weeks is about divine reversal. And that's been such a story of my life, of how God has reversed so many situations from disaster to majesty. The Profile You're listening to Premier Christian Radio. Hello and welcome to The Profile, here on Premier Christian Radio with me, Sam Howes. The Profile is the show where we delve into a person's life, faith and testimony. And it's brought to you in association with the UK's leading Christian magazine. That's Premier Christianity magazine, the magazine that I edit. If you would like a free copy of the latest issue of our print magazine, why not head to premierchristianity.com forward slash free sample. Simply type your details in and we'll send you a free copy of the latest edition. But now today here on The Profile, I'm delighted to say I'm speaking to Canon Andrew White, also known as the Vicar of Baghdad. Andrew was previously the Vicar of St. George's Church, Baghdad, the only Anglican church in Iraq, until his departure, ordered in November 2014 by the Archbishop of Canterbury due to security concerns. He's the former president of the Foundation for Relief and Reconciliation in the Middle East, and he now heads up a new organisation, Jerusalem Merit. Welcome to the show. Good afternoon. Good morning. It's wonderful being with you. Now, I know you you began your career actually working in the medical profession, uh, didn't you? So tell me a bit about that. And also when you first sensed a call out of that work into full-time ministry. Well, the one the story I always tell is when I was nine years old at school, my teacher said, what do you want to do when you grow up? And I said, I want to be an anaesthetist and a priest. <laughs> and she said, you can't do two things. And she said, you can't be a priest anyway because you're a Pentecostal and they don't have priests. Anyway, I did do the two things. You proved them wrong. You moved on and, as you say, you went from being a medical doctor to being a priest as well. And a Pentecostal at that. There's clearly room in the Church of England for a broad range of uh, expressions, that's for sure. Um, You ended up studying, um, I think, uh, Christian theology at Cambridge. But I understand you actually switched to Judaism. What were the reasons for that? Can I be honest with you? You can. Christian theology was quite boring. And I always had a love for Judaism and Israel and rabbinics. So for my doctorate work, I looked at the role of Israel in Christian theology. And then I looked at something which is in Yiddish, which is the role of the Baal Shem Tov in the Haskalah. Now, none of your people will understand that unless I'm afraid, they're Jewish. I'm afraid I don't either. You'll have to, you have to tell me. So it's all about the growth of Hasidic Judaism in Judaism when the time of modernism was coming. The new group of ultra-Orthodox Jews with the long beards and mm-hmm. the ringlets, yep. they developed and basically... They're the charismatics of Judaism. Many Christians would look at the state of Israel today and and they would say there's been this amazing return of the Jewish people to the nation state of Israel in in modern times. And many Christians would actually see that as a fulfilment of biblical prophecy. Is that a take that you would agree with? I would agree with it. But people say to me, do you believe in the two-state solution? Will there be peace in Israel and Palestine as we know it now? I say no. I don't believe in a two-state solution. And I really don't believe there'll be peace until Yeshua, Jesus, returns. That will be the beginning of real peace. So coming back to some of your story, I'd love to hear a little bit more about your early life and um, tell me something of your family background, where you grew up, and also where Christian faith first came into the picture for you. I actually was born in the East End of London. Can you tell I'm a Cockney? (laughs) So I grew up originally in the East End and I was 
in a split household, Christian-wise. My father was a strict Baptist, ultra-Calvinist, and my mother was a Assemblies of God Pentecostal because her father, my grandfather, had been the assistant of Smith Wigglesworth. So I still have Smith Wigglesworth's actual Bible, which I carry around with me everywhere. So that was my early life. Then we moved out of London to the suburbs of Kent, to Bexley, and I did my medical studies, not my medical studies, I did my E-levels, and then went off to um, St. Thomas's Hospital and studied at Thomas's and loved it. I loved every moment of my life there. And it was quite strange because in my youth, I had lots of medical problems. I had recurrent bouts of septicemia caused by a terrible wound I'd got when I just fell off my bicycle. But the thing is that I was eventually healed by God and could get into my medical training. And it was wonderful. How would you say your Christian faith has changed and developed since that early life? So growing up in a Christian environment, Christian family, how does faith today look different from the faith of your childhood? Well, it's very interesting because I never really had a conversion experience because as a young boy, I was taught to love Jesus Mm -hmm. and to talk to him every day, and he would talk to me, and I've done that every day. Mm -hmm. And the thing which really is different in my life from so many people is that I've never had a down point in my Christian life. I've always loved Jesus. Even at Cambridge, I didn't have questions about my faith. And I really thank God that my sons have really followed in those footsteps. My boy, when he was at Cambridge doing theology in Chinese, Even he didn't have questions about the reality of his faith. The only thing I don't understand to this day, I can't really understand the Trinity. (laughs) I believe it, but I don't have a theological understanding of it. I, uh, I've interviewed a number of people, Ken Andrew White, and I, I would say very few people who have sat in that chair have claimed to understand the Trinity either. It's not, uh, it's not an easy theological concept for us it's to It's a mystery which is real. Mm. Mm. We live with God, who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And is there a sense in which your background, Christian upbringing, perhaps especially the Pentecostal element of your upbringing, would have emphasised having that personal experience and relationship with God, which I don't want to say having that personal experience means the questions don't matter, but there is a sense in which if, even though it's subjective, if you've experienced something for yourself, that helps when we wrestle with questions because you have a you you can fall back on, well, I know something happened to me, I know I, I hear God speak to me, and so therefore the questions aren't as um, aren't to be feared, perhaps, in the same way. Absolutely. Um, It's a real challenge to live my faith out when my body doesn't work, and I've really got to keep believing and trusting that God will bring healing to me, Mm. and that's probably the biggest challenge to me at the moment. Yes. But I know that God is here and his spirit is with me Mm. and he will revive me. I want to talk some more um, about that and and get an update on on your health, which I know has been uh, something you've wrestled with for for decades um, now. But but just before we get there, um, you're well known as someone who has promoted reconciliation. That's been a word that has marked out so much of your life. Looking back at family, upbringing, are there any signs 
um, as you look back, that that might have been something in your future? Was was this something that you were? Was this a value that you were instilled with at an early age to bring people together and to and to work together for reconciliation? Where do you think that idea came from? My initial introduction to reconciliation was when the Jews and the Christians fell out when I was a student. I was a very strange student because I wasn't just a member of the Cambridge University Christian Union. I was also a member of the Jewish Society. <laughs> and when the KIGU, the Christian Union, decided to invite Jews for Jesus to their mission, the Jews were really upset. And the result was I founded a group called QJAC, Cambridge University Jews and Christians. And that was the first reconciliation work I did, bringing Jews and Christians together. All those people who were afraid of each other became best of friends. And it's strange that even now I will go to those young people who were our young Jewish students, I will still go and speak in their synagogues in North London. And we are still friends. Mm. And we are still very, very close. Tell me a bit more practically about what that looked like. So you had two groups of people on campus who were against each other. How practically did you go about bringing them together? And are there lessons that others can learn from how you bring two people who are, um, you know, very opposed to one another, how we bring them together? Well, it's very interesting because in so much of my work, it has always been how do we bring enemies together? And I would say that the most important thing to start is to know that when we meet, we eat <laughs> and getting food together. And with the Orthodox Jewish community, all that food has got to be kosher. Mm. Another really strange thing I actually became the Kashrut officer. That's the kosher officer for the Cambridge University Jewish Society. <laughs> so I went to Israel and studied at Yeshiva, which is where they train rabbis. And so I became a mega expert in the halacha, in Jewish law. And when I was in Cambridge looking after Kashrut, the students complained that since I had taken over, the kosher rules had become glat kosher, which is ultra, ultra kosher, <laughs> because that's what I had learned. Right. The Christian comes along and makes the kosher laws even more kosher. Tell me a bit more about how that Hebraic understanding and backgrounds that was there at quite quite early on in your life how that has influenced the way you've read scripture and how you've understood Jesus because many people that I speak to will say when you start to understand the Hebraic context and cultural background of the scriptures some of what Jesus said just starts to make sense in a whole a whole new way do you, do you have any personal experience of that as, as, as you studied Judaism it's helped you in your Christian faith absolutely without doubt I understand my faith through the Judaic foundations of the faith of my Lord, who happened to be Jewish. And so the fact is that I'm a follower of a Jewish leader. I'm a follower of a rabbi. And it upsets me that so many churches fail to understand the Judaic roots of their own faith tradition. Um, one of the things I always say is that we need to listen to each other's stories. Who is my enemy? It is the person whose story I have not heard. And so in listening to the stories of each other, we begin to see who each other really is. And our enemies 
become our friends. I'm aware we're just, at the time of recording, we're days away from a general election in this country. And um, many people, including the chief rabbi, raise concerns about one of the, about the leader of opposition in Jeremy Corbyn, even suggesting that uh, he has not just allowed anti-Semitism to flourish in the Labour Party, but he himself might be guilty of anti-Semitism. Quite um, uh, unusual circumstances to be in with the chief rabbi saying that. Do you share his concerns? What do you think? I'm an impartial journalist asking the questions. I totally, utterly believe that. The thing is that we have seen a rapid growth of anti-Semitism in British society. And we have to do everything to stand against it and say, no, we are not going to hold for it. And sadly, even much of the church has developed this radical BDS movement, boycotts and discrimination and... Sanctions. Sanctions. Mm. I think it's boycotts, divestment and sanctions. So this Boycotts, is a... divestment from Israel yeah. and sanctions, BDS. Mm. And that is a religiously sanctioned way of developing an anti-Semitic approach. Bringing it back to uh, your life once again, we have to talk, obviously, about the time you spent in Iraq. As I said, for really most of your life, I think you've been known as the vicar of Baghdad, the only Anglican priest um, in that city. And... Um, I mean, there's so much to cover. Only to start with. Only to start with. We, we'll come on to that. But let's let's begin with 2003. So this, of course, was when the invasion of Iraq took place. And you were living and working in Baghdad. What are your memories of Already that before the war, I was there. What are your memories of that period? It was one of the greatest periods of my life. Everything we had hoped for happened. And sadly, what happened afterwards wasn't good. But it really was an incredible triumph for all Iraqis at the time. You're talking about the, the invasion being a triumph. Yes. Mm. Why do you say that? Because the regime of Saddam Hussein were so evil and so corrupt. Everybody lived in fear and everybody was looking for a solution. Sadly, getting rid of one Saddam has created a thousand Saddams. Many people have pointed to ISIS specifically as the outworking of this. And I suppose some would look at the political situation. They would say, yes, you removed one dictator in Saddam, and yet something far worse in ISIS has risen up in its place. Would you agree with that analysis? Yes, it's true. I suppose it's it's always easy, isn't it, with the benefit of hindsight to, to ask questions like this. But nevertheless, some are asking questions of... Well, does that mean that the invasion itself was wrong because of what it's led to? It's led to something far worse than what Saddam actually was. I was a big supporter of the initial removal of Saddam. And I said against many of the Christians' advice, this has to happen. But what happened afterwards was horrendous. And the coalition were not prepared to move a nation from bigotry and disaster to democracy. And the Americans talked all the time about cre creating a democratic state. And Iraq is not a democratic state. And the solution to Middle Eastern rationality in government is not by having democracy. Democracy often leads to anarchy. I always say that what we need is benevolent dictatorship, like in Jordan, where the king has total power, but he's lovely. <laughs> 
and he cares for his people. And you would prefer a benevolent dictator to democracy? Definitely. Because my experience of democracy is anarchy. And presumably you're talking mainly about the Middle East. I mean, you probably wouldn't, wouldn't say the same for the UK. You wouldn't prefer a benevolent, benevolent uh, dictator in the UK to our current system of democracy? No, I think in a place like the UK and the US, de- um, democracy is the way. Right. Um, but what, but so why you doesn't, need strong leadership. So why doesn't, if democracy is the way in the West, why doesn't it translate so well to Middle Eastern culture in your view? It's a totally different culture and a culture which really looks to one person to provide the direction mm. and the total empowerment of the nation. People don't just want to follow some d- democratic regime. They want to follow a leader. They want to see a strong, powerful, kind leader. Tell us the story of how you ended up in Baghdad in the first place. Well, I wasn't sent there because there was nobody who wanted me to go there. I just had an incredible feeling that God wanted me to go. And I prayed about it so much. And I tried various means to get in and everything failed and remarkably when I actually prayed about it God intervened he's far better than any diplomat and the next day I got a call from Tariq Aziz who was Saddam's deputy and it said can you meet me in my office next Thursday at five o'clock and this was in 1997 and my interest in Israel was what originally gave me my interest in the whole of the Middle East and so I had a strange life of going regularly from Jerusalem to Baghdad and often I would go between the two in those difficult years. And um, the highlight of this ministry was when we managed to bring together the religious leaders of Israel with the religious leaders of Iraq. And we met in Cyprus. And one of the chief rabbis, who was so worried about meeting with these Shiite leaders because of Iran and everything else. At the end of our three days together, he said, I have three words to say. Fear is cancelled. The Ayatollah spoke up and said, I hated you Zionists. I came here, I looked in your eyes, and you became my friends. It's an incredible story, and uh, perhaps rather strangely, it almost reminds me of some of what we see on social media. And the reason I say that is you'll find when people are behind keyboards typing messages to each other, they can be quite nasty, and yet you think when those two people are in the same room. They would never dare say those words because, like you say, there's something that happens on a human level where we look into the person across the uh, across the table and actually um, and see them in a, in a different way. Yes, I get fairly nasty messages, but I also get very, very good messages. And um, I communicate with the world, really, via Facebook. I noticed you're very active on social media. (laughs) And um, every week, I still on Friday night, 
I publish a Parsha, the Jewish reading for the week. And so all of those key aspects of my life are all demonstrated in my social media. Mm. Yeah. I, su- I suppose you see it overall as a, in that sense, a force for good and something to be embraced. I do. I know that a lot of people tell me I shouldn't be doing it all really? the time. Who tells you that? Oh, everybody. Most people. Okay. What are, What are their reasons? Uh, because it means I don't sleep. Ah, okay. And all the time I'm working and talking with the people in Australia and America when I should be resting. And I'm not really a great believer in resting a lot. (laughs) I might have guessed that from looking at your CV and all that you've been involved in. Um, It doesn't look like there's been a lot of resting. It looks like there's been a lot of... Uh, meetings, a lot of speaking, a lot of raising funds for your work. Um, do you find it hard to switch off? Yes. Yes, very hard. You're listening to Premier Christian Radio with me, Sam Hales. You've joined us for The Profile this afternoon, and my guest today is Canon Andrew White. We'll be hearing lots more from him right after this. Premier Christianity magazine. In this month's issue... Artie Kendall unpacks the problem with living for the praise of others. Missionaries Shirley and David Donovan share their harrowing story of being kidnapped in Nigeria and how God protected them during their 22-day ordeal. And we speak to Louis Giglio about his life-changing ministry to university students. Plus, Tim Hughes reveals how he spends his money. For your free copy, visit premierchristianity.com forward slash free sample. The Profile You're listening to Premier Christian Radio. Welcome back to The Profile here on Premier Christian Radio with me, Sam Hales. My guest on the show today is Canon Andrew White, commonly known as the Vicar of Baghdad. Let's listen in to the rest of our conversation. What were some of the challenges you faced as a pastor and what were some of the issues that you dealt with on a pastoral level when trying to lead people in a city like Baghdad? I'm thinking especially during a time of conflict. Um, what did pa- I'm guessing that your uh, ministry as a pastor looked quite different there to what it would have done had you stayed here. Very different. And the aspect of my ministry there was that I didn't just pastor this huge church which ended up being six and a half thousand people but i was also pastor to the u.s embassy chapel so the coalition provision authority saddam's old palace his throne room became my chapel and it was rather good (laughs) there's an amazing image on social media of you sitting on saddam's throne yeah that became my pulpit (laughs) It was quite interesting how the things of evil can become the things of God. Mm. And one of the things I've been looking at in the last couple of weeks is about divine reversal. Mm. And that's been such a story of my life, of how God has reversed so many situations from disaster to majesty. Let's talk about what happened some years later in 2014. I understand Justin Welber, the Archbishop of Canterbury, more or less ordered you to leave Baghdad for your own personal safety. And I get the impression, Andrew, that you were perhaps a little bit reluctant to go. Well, it's difficult when somebody who has worked with you suddenly becomes your boss. And he had been with me in Baghdad. And he said to me, Andrew, he said, you're more use alive than dead. And if you don't get out of there, you won't be alive much longer. And the reality is, he was telling the truth. And ISIS were, at that point, literally surrounding us. And I had to leave. 
And that's when I started setting up our ministry in Jordan. But what of the people you were leaving behind? I mean, you mentioned the church at its height was six and a half thousand people. It must have been very difficult for you to say, okay, that's fine for me. I can come back to the UK. I can go back to relative safety. But you were leaving behind Christian brothers and sisters who were facing death. Exactly. And so many of our people had gone back to their original home in Nineveh. They were originally from Jonah land, but ISIS then settled in Nineveh and started destroying everything there. I always used to say to my people, I will not leave you, don't you leave me. When I left and went to Jordan, something really incredible happened. All my people started leaving for Jordan as well. And so today, most of our work there, all of my work there, is with my same people who I had in Baghdad. They are with me now. I love them. I care for them. They care for me. They love me. And it's wonderful to see how, after so many years and so many difficulties, God is still working. Am I right in thinking that it's currently impossible for either you or for your people in Jordan to go back to Baghdad? Certainly impossible for my Iraqis. All of them say we will never go back. They have lost their homes, their businesses, their finances. Everything they had has been taken from them. And it just reminds them of constant disaster. And so most of them now are actually ending up going to Australia. They used to go to Canada, so I still got lots of my people in Canada or in America, but now it's mainly Australia. And I have tried to keep in contact with my people when they leave, and it's quite a long way to Australia. (laughs) Hence being up late at night on Facebook, keeping in touch. Exactly. (laughs) Um, You would be, wouldn't you? I'm aware that you supported the initial invasion of Iraq in 2003 and the need to remove Saddam. Thinking now about ISIS, is there a political solution similar to that? I mean, what is needed to deal with this problem that I think we're agreed is much worse than the problem under Saddam, the problem we now have of ISIS? Is more Western intervention now required? Well, the Western intervention has taken down a lot of ISIS's work. So that's really good. So I think we're at the stage now where real rebuilding and restoration needs to take place. And there have been terrible riots in Iraq in the last few weeks. There have been mass demonstrations. Key leaders have been killed in places like Karbala and Kadamir. And um, they really need a new government. The Prime Minister has been basically ousted and there's nobody to take over. It's very, very difficult. I believe it was in your 30s when you were diagnosed with MS. That's a condition that, as as far as I understand it, there isn't a cure for. No. So tell me um, about your health now. Are you in pain right now? No, I was last night, but not now. So is this this managed then due to medication? I usually, if I do the right things, I can keep going. Mm. But I understand you've actually been aware, uh, been involved in really pioneering a, you know, stem cell therapy, which I don't think was done before. So tell us some more of of that story. No, when I was in Baghdad, one of my colleagues, an Iraqi hematologist, and she actually started harvesting my own stem cells and injecting them back into me. 
and that had a major transformation to my life. Unfortunately, when I couldn't go back to Iraq, the treatment stopped working, and that's what really led to my demise and the fact that I could no longer walk. So that treatment is not available anywhere else in the in the world? Even if it were, it doesn't seem to work anymore. Really? Yeah. What What's the reason for that? I don't know. I think it's something to do with stopping it for such a long period. Mm-hmm. But um, despite everything, I can still manage to do all that I need to do. Mm-hmm. I'm still travelling around the world. I'm still looking after my people. I'm still ministering in the love and glory of God. And you expect to for some time yet? I do. Can you ever see yourself retiring? Well, the Church of England officially retired me. They sent me to all these different doctors and they basically said I was too ill to work anymore. Um, But I've never stopped. (laughs) I want to talk a bit more about um, some of your charity work. Um, I think even today, perhaps still best known for your work with Foundation for Relief and Reconciliation in the Middle East. But you did, um, you, you left that. I want to talk about the circumstances surrounding that because at one point the Charity Commission got involved and um, they believed at one point, or at least investigating, that you, uh, your organisation might have paid money to Islamic State in return for the release of slaves. But after the investigation, you were cleared of any wrongdoing. What happened there? Why did they even think that might have taken place? Well, because they knew that we were getting back people out of sex slavery and at no point did we ever pay any money. But it appeared like that. And so, in a way, I was liberated from all of that. The police did very intense inquiries and came back and said, we've found no evidence to suggest mm. that you were involved in this in any way. So how were... By that, we had set up our new foundation mm. called the uh, um, Jerusalem Merit yeah. Middle East Reconciliation International. So how were those slaves freed? As you say, it wasn't a question of paying money to ISIS, but like you say, you did, you were involved in freeing slaves. How did that... Well, us? it was purely through connections, people we knew. And the one thing about peacemaking, you can only really do peacemaking if you know the bad people. And we knew the bad people because we've always done things with them and for them. I know previously you were involved in, in hostage negotiation and, and all sorts of other things on a political level. But but how, again, help me understand how this works. You call someone up who's a bad guy, who's a terrorist, who's got a slave. What do you say? Let the slave go, please. And they do. I mean, how how do these things actually work? No, hostage negotiation... I've been involved in many, many hostage cases, well over 150, and I've managed to successfully release probably only 58 people, but that's 58 people more than most others have ever released. But what you have to do is to form long-term relationships. Some of those negotiations went on for over six years. So there's no quick deals here. Are you still involved in trying to free slaves uh, around the world? No, I'm not. And um, amongst Iraqis, there are very few slaves now. So the whole nature of my work has changed very considerably. And I'm really focusing still on what we can do to help our refugees. Mm. Yes. Yes, we'll come on and talk more about um, Jerusalem Merit. Just before we get there, though, you, you, you said at the time that you were, I quote, kicked out 
of your charity, the Foundation for Relief and Reconciliation in the Middle East. Now, they dispute this. So what actually happened? How did that relationship come to an no, end? No, I, I don't think I was kicked out. That's what you said at the time. I did see that at the time. Basically, I was told to retire. And um, they had medical advice to tell them that. And it felt like that, but um, it wasn't exactly that, no. So let's talk about Jerusalem Merit. It's the new organisation that you've uh, launched. And as you mentioned, a lot of it, as I understand it, is involved in Jordan with refugees who were previously in Iraq. But tell me more about what Jerusalem Merit was set up to do and what you're currently working on. Well, very much to continue our work of reconciliation and relief work and bringing together enemies to help them become friends and helping those who've been left destitute to actually find hope and a future. And so it's very exciting work and we are seeing these things happen. Do you feel like... um do you feel like the Charity Commission are after you a little bit, though? Because I noticed the Charity Commission have also investigated Jerusalem merits. Yeah. It's difficult because when you've got this history, people are always suspicious. But the wonderful thing is that they haven't got anything that they can find, which is worrying. Mm. Um, And there is a real concern of any organisation, particularly working with persecuted Christians, to actually know that they have got society behind them. So you would say then that, that any investigation you would say it's not based on any kind of fact, they haven't got a leg to stand on and, and you'll be cleared of any any wrongdoing in any of the charities that you've been involved in? Yes. It does beg the question, though, why? I mean, because for the Charity Commission to investigate you once is strange, but twice in two separate organisations, you've got to understand, for some people, that will raise questions. I think this is concerning. Why are the Charity Commission looking into Canon Andrew White? What's your response to those who might be concerned to, to hear that? I would say to them, look, look at us and see what our real work is and see that what we're really doing for the protection of the marginalised and showing love to those who have no love. And we are not going to stop our work. What's been the best day of your ministry and what's been the worst day? So many of my days, I'd say, have been the best days. The incredible miracles we saw of people, the resurrections we saw, the people being healed. What resurrections did you see? We saw several resurrections. Was this in, ba- in Baghdad? Yes. People who died who came back yeah. to life? The one story I mention often was of a young girl. Her father came to our clinic. Where I've worked, I've always had church and clinic. He came to our clinic and he said, Abuna, Abuna, father, father, can you help my daughter? She's in the university hospital and she's so ill and I want her to be treated by you. I said, there's no way we can treat her. She's at the university hospital. What I can do is pray for her. And I know that Jesus will heal her. So we prayed with him for the restoration of his daughter. He went to the hospital. As he arrived, the doctor said, I'm so sorry. Your daughter died when you were away. And he cried and cried and cried. 
I told him to go back to the hospital, saying the name of Jesus in Aramaic, Yeshua, Yeshua, Yeshua. And so he was crying in desperate state. And he went to see her body. And he got hold of her. And he said, Yeshua, Yeshua, Yeshua. And she sat up. And she said, Daddy, I'm hungry. Can I have some food? So that was one of the really incredible stories. Wow. And that was a day we would never forget. And there are other stories as well like that. The fact that she said she was hungry and wanted something to eat, reminded, as you said that, reminded me of the story in the Bible. Yeah, Jairus' daughter. That's exactly what happened, Jesus said. When he came back, I said, don't worry, it's happened before. How would you describe your calling? My calling is first and foremost to love the Lord with all my heart, with all my soul, and with all my mind. The words of the Shema Israel, and to love my neighbor as myself, and to feed the hungry, the imprisoned, those who are lonely, to set aside myself for the loving through Christ of God's people. As you think back over all that you've been involved in through the decades, do you have any regrets? I think I could have been a bit wiser at some occasions. In what way? Well, particularly with all this situation with the Charity Commission and the things which I was perceived as doing wrong then. Um... It wasn't very wise to have talked about how we got people back from sex slavery. Mm. That's one of my big mistakes. I know you you spend a lot of your time travelling, but you also spend plenty of time here in the here in the UK. What is your perception of the health of the church in the UK? Do you think the church in the UK is in a good place? Um, are you optimistic? Are you pessimistic? Well. W- I have seen so many churches here, and where there is a real openness to the Holy Spirit, there is a real hope. Mm. And that is what I have hope for. Mm. A church which is on fire with the love of God. Mm. A church which is desperately in love with the Messiah. Mm. And a lot of my work now is with connected with Bethel Reading, the School of Supernatural Ministry. And that's been amazing because it's enabled me to take this whole mission story to another level. But as a glory story, seeing the glory and the power of the Lord at work. Both the story you mentioned earlier of the the person being raised from the dead and and also talking about Bethel, which is a church obviously associated with many miracles, uh, makes me wonder, do you think we as Christians need to be bolder in praying those prayers to see the supernatural happen? Do we need to be a bit bolder about praying for healing and believing that God can do miracles? Absolutely. And we need to also be bolder how we minister because people who are ill including me, have been through a very difficult time with so many Christians. You know, I've had people saying to me, if you really had faith, you'd be healed. You just haven't got faith. You're not a real believer. And the Lord is saying, I'm with those people. I'm holding their hand. I'm not leaving them. And so we need to know the glory of God in a new radical way and expect mighty things. Well, one of the things I love about your story is, is what you mentioned earlier about making making friends or making connections with people who are regarded as enemies. 
and um, I know that would apply for many people you've met down the years. Are you still involved in those kind of conversations? I mean, who are the people who you would be happy to share a meal with and to talk to who others might think, wow, I'm not sure if I could do that because I just see them as an enemy and it would be really hard for me to do that. Does that, that sort of thing still happen for you? He does, and I, uh, there are many people who I want to meet and engage with, and I do meet and engage with, and I will be very soon. And so it's something which is still done, and we know that it doesn't have an end. Mm. So who's on your list who you're next meeting? Well, I need to meet more with some of the major Islamic leaders in the region. I need to meet with the Ayatollahs and some of those people who themselves are struggling to rebuild. Where does sharing your faith come into these kinds of conversations? Is it is it a question of in these meetings you're not there necessarily to convince the um, Islamic Ayatollah to follow Jesus and become a Christian you're there in a slightly different way to actually bring reconciliation between people or or, or do you not see it that way do you do you see it as um, you know where does evangelism kind of fall into those sorts of meetings well in all my years in Baghdad I never actually preached to people who were Muslims to convert and yet so many people came to faith and they came to faith because they were loved by us and they were treated as people of the kingdom by us and all of them came to faith when they saw the man in white and so often Jesus was physically seen as the man in white saying come follow me well i wish we had more time to delve into those incredible stories but sadly the clock is against us canon andrew white thank you so much for coming in and sharing your story thank you very much it's been good being with you You've been listening to The Profile here on Premier Christian Radio with me, Sam Hales. This show is brought to you in association with the magazine that I edit. It's Premier Christianity magazine. That's the UK's leading Christian publication. And we would love for you to have a free sample copy of the latest issue. Get the full edition completely free and delivered direct to your doorstep. Why not request one? PremierChristianity.com forward slash free sample. And the latest issue, we've got news, interviews, reviews, columnists, and loads more great content. It's all exclusive to Premier Christianity magazine. You won't find this content anywhere else. So go ahead, request a free sample copy now, PremierChristianity.com forward slash free sample. We'll be back same time, same place with another great interview for you next week. See you then.